Chapter 33 of Harry D. Or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Charlotte Rose. Harry D. Or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 33 In which Kaget makes a startling disclosure and I pass for the great crisis of my life. There beside the faint light of the lowered lamp, in presence of a kneeling man riding with agony, I stood horror-stricken. It was a terrible moment, terrible in its present features, more terrible still in what it promised. Kaget was looking with a strained gaze not at the bed, but at something on a line with it. His hands were alternately clasped, then thrown out from his body as though he were waving off some hideous vision. Inarticulate gasps and groans were laboring from his throat. Gasps and groans beast-like in their sound, with the added human agony of a man beside himself with terror. I did not know it at the time, but I am now certain that, as Nugent had predicted, he was crazed with drink. I would have come to his help, but I was no longer master of myself, and for what seemed a long span of time I stood motionless, gazing with awe upon this uncanny sight. At last Kaget burst into speech. Oh, Mr. D, Mr. D, you made me do it! Go away! For God's sake, don't look on me that way! And he waved his hands madly. I looked in the direction of the bed, almost expecting to see the luminous specter of my uncle. But I saw nothing. It was all your own doing, Mr. D. You drove me to it. Didn't you tear up the will which made me your heir? I was listening and I knew you had over forty thousand dollars with you. I couldn't help it. I didn't mean to kill you. Imagine my state of mind when I heard these words. It was a murder, after all, and I was alone with the murderer. Before God, I didn't mean it. I stole up here and tried to get your money without waking you, but you opened your eyes and recognized me. Then I seized your knife and, oh, keep off, keep off. He gave a wild cry and fell foaming at the mouth. With an effort, I freed myself from the spell which had bound me, and turning on the full light of the lamp, I hastened to Kaged. There he lay, the embodiment of remorse and terror, his mouth still covered with foam, his eyes glassed in horror, every feature hideous beyond all human features I had ever seen. There he lay, my uncle's murderer. I could scarcely bring myself to touch this inanimate clot of crime. How my soul sickened as I put my arms about this dreadful man and placed him on my uncle's bed. I returned to the table and seated myself. Serious as I feared was the condition of that man of blood, 
I could not bring myself to touch his loathsome body again. Even his stertorous breathing filled me with disgust, and yet I realized that I would be obliged to spend several hours, at the very least, in his company. Nor, as the time passed on, did my feelings of loathing lessen. To add to my disquietude, I found gradually that I was fascinated by that still figure on the bed. I could not withdraw my eyes from his face, though with every second that face seemed to take on additional repulsiveness. At length, unable to endure the situation longer, I brought a chair to the table and set about counting my treasure trove. I spent quite a time in separating the gold, silver, and the bills of various denominations. But presently, I found that I was in no frame of mind to carry out my intention. Then I began pacing up and down the room, keeping my face turned from the bed, endeavoring to put Kaget out of my mind, and forcing my thoughts into lovelier channels. I thought of Percy. How I longed for the presence of that dear friend. I thought of Tom, our little Jesuit. By this time, Tom must have heard Midnight Mass, and it comforted me to think that his prayers were with me and helping me even now. Now. That one word brought back the ugly present realities. Brought back Kaget and all the hideous train of thought I had endeavored to put aside. Yes, I was at length sure of the murderer. Sure, too, of the money so long lost. But how about my uncle's note announcing his intention of committing suicide? How, too, did it happen that the money had been secreted? Certainly my uncle, as I knew from the data furnished me by Lang, had not been in the habit of hiding his money. Had he actually intended to commit suicide, only to be killed by his villainous servant before he could carry out his purpose? If so, why then had he concealed the money? But I scouted the thought that my uncle had contemplated making away with himself. I remembered my last interview with him. I remembered his kind words, and I felt convinced that, if he had written the note directed to me, it had been written previous to our interview in this bedroom. And his intention had certainly been changed. For several hours did I ponder and consider, endeavoring vainly to piece these contradictory circumstances into a consistent whole. At length, wearied and troubled, I paused in my walk and turned my face toward the open window which looked out upon the east. The first faint grey streaks of dawn were upon the horizon. I stood for some moments gazing upon this joyous promise of daylight. But I found presently that Kaget's figure was again asserting its horrible fascination. And once more I turned my face to the wall and, seating myself, I forced my thoughts to dwell upon the sweetest memories of Christmas. I believe that all boys take pleasure in thinking of Bethlehem and the angels' songs. It is a series of beautiful tableaux for young as well as old. At all events, I became very interested in these tender memories 
and I actually made what Catholics call a meditation. My imagination grew vivid, and I almost saw the dear infant, the sweet mother, almost saw that multitude of the heavenly hosts praising and glorifying God, almost saw the great light which cast such holy fear upon the shepherds, almost heard the heavenly chorus singing Gloria in excelsis, Deo, when suddenly, why I do not know unless it be that I have a guardian angel, the vision faded, and by some impulse which I do not attempt to account for, I turned my head sharply. I was not one moment too soon. As I turned, I noticed in the very act that it was sunrise, and the sun, bright and cheerful, was peeping over the eastern hills. This I noticed in a flash. But the fact of sunrise had no interest for me at that moment. The bed was empty! Caget, on tiptoe, he had advanced halfway across the room. His evil eyes were fixed upon me in a way there was no mistaking. In his right hand he grasped an open knife. The knife almost escaped my attention, but the eyes! I read in them that I was not to leave the room alive. You may be sure I didn't stop to stare. For as I took in the situation I bounded to my feet, while Caget, throwing aside his attempt at stealthiness, sprang at me with a fierce cry like the cry of a savage beast in its most savage moment. Fear lent me agility. In a trice I had placed the table between myself and him. Oh, how I reproached myself that I had neglected to bring a pistol! I was face to face with men stronger than myself and more accustomed, I had good reason for thinking, to deeds of violence. He was armed with a knife. I was unprotected. My heart sank within me, for I realized that the chances were in his favor. I thought of making a dash for the door, but it was evident that before I could turn the knob his knife would be in my back. Again I thought of picking up a chair and fighting with him with that weapon. But this would involve a hand-to-hand -hand conflict, a thing I was resolved to avoid as long as possible. For my great hope was in getting assistance from without. That cowardly law clerk might, after all, have heart enough in his chicken breast to return once it was broad daylight. His return was my strongest hope. I resolved, therefore, by putting the table between Caget and myself to keep him at a distance as long as possible. What a tragic chase it was! With his eyes fixed steadily upon mine, Caget played me as an angler would play a fish. With the coming of day his bravery had returned, and it was the fierce bravery of desperation. His terror had disappeared as completely as the shades of night. The deadly purpose which animated him could be read in his every feature, and most legibly in the rigid determination of his compressed lips and heavy lower jaw. Our actions, were it not for our facial expressions, might have impressed an observer with the idea that we were playing a game of tag.
Round and round we moved about the table, and on with guarded step, and on with sudden dashes. His every movement, slow or rapid, his every pause was my guide. As he moved, I moved. As he paused, I paused. How long this grim game went on, I cannot say. It seemed at times to be of interminable length. It seemed at times to have gone on but for a few seconds. Whatever the length of time, we were soon breathing heavily. I could feel my heart beating in a way that under ordinary circumstances would have alarmed me. But placed as I was, I was too excited to be sensible of fear. It was in one of these pauses, when I stood stock still, separated by the length of the table from my adversary, that there came upon the stillness, thus far broken only by our heavy breathing, a crashing noise, and with it the room grew suddenly quite dark. For the moment Kaget was disconcerted. He turned suddenly in the direction whence the noise came, and I took the advantage of that one moment to seize the lamp from the table, and send it with all my force at his head. The noise that had alarmed Kaget so much was occasioned by the falling of the window curtain, which, owing doubtless to our violent motions, had broken from its fastening above the window. As I had been facing in that direction, I had taken in the circumstance without being obliged to turn my eyes from my enemy. But quick as I had been in hurling the lamp at Kaget, I was the least bit late. As he ducked his head, the lamp went crashing against the wall, within a few inches of the curtained window, and burst into a thousand fragments. With a sharp hiss, Kaget made a dash round the table. I was almost too late in recovering myself. And indeed, as I darted away, the blade of his knife touched my coat. The throwing of the lamp had given me a new idea. Upon the table there still remained the box, heavy with its store of coins. In passing around the table I seized it, determined to await my opportunity to throw it at his head. But here I made a fatal mistake. The box was heavy and cumbrous. Once in my hands, I discovered that I had to rid myself of it, or be caught in a few moments. I hesitated between replacing it or throwing it at Kaget. It was probably the hesitation of half a second, but my decision, as the sequel will show, was unfortunate. I threw it at Kaget's head. At once Kaget ducked beneath the table. And while the papers and notes went fluttering about the room, and with a thousand jingles the silver and gold fell and rolled in all directions upon the carpetless floor, mingling confusedly with the fragments of the glass. And while I stood motionless, waiting for Kaget's head to reappear, I suddenly felt a strong clasp upon my left ankle. Kaget had crawled under the table to my side. On the instant I screamed out, Help! Help! And with all my energy I broke away. I succeeded in tearing myself from his grasp. But at what cost? 
I lost my balance, fell headlong, and though I sprang to my feet without waste of a moment, there was a sharp, stinging pain in my left leg, just above the ankle, where Kaget's knife had penetrated. At once my plans were changed. Delay on my part would now be dangerous, for the blood was streaming from the wound. And I grimly foresaw that with loss of blood I would presently become weak and dizzy. And then all would be over. The issue must be at once, and therefore, as I gained my feet, I turned and sprang upon Kaget, catching him above the wrist of his right hand, so as to prevent his stabbing me, and bearing him, with the force of my spring and the unexpectedness of the onset, heavily to the floor. Then there resulted a fearful struggle. He was under me, glaring at me with the same murderous look, and despite all my efforts prodding me here and there above the shoulders with his knife. I put both hands to his wrist and held it firmly, while the blood came trickling down my arm and fell upon his upturned face. And very soon what little confidence I had was gone, for I felt my strength leaving me. Strange noises, did they come from within or without? Broke like the beating of drums upon my ears. The firmness of my grasp relaxed, and as a feeling of intense lassitude came over my frame, the full horror of my situation flashed upon me. I endeavored to pray, and in the act heard, as I fancied, quick footfalls without. Perhaps help was nigh. The thought seemed to revive my strength, and indeed I needed it all. Catching Kaget's hand, which had just escaped me, I arrested what might have been a fatal stroke. The struggle was renewed, and as it went on I was certain that someone was coming. I felt now that my grasp upon him was losing its firmness. And then the door burst open, and a figure, so dim had my eyes become that I failed to make out who or what it was, bounded into the room. I saw an arm strike out once, twice, and then I slipped into unconsciousness. End of chapter 33